Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Well, hello. Thank you for the beautiful photograph you sent me of the risotto that you cooked. Yeah, it didn't go so well. And I texted straight back. I said, I said, this reminds me, we should really do an episode on prison food. Yeah, I know it didn't go well, really. What happened? Well, I was sort of, maybe I'd become complacent from my relative success from the aubergine curry. But basically the first risotto I made, I sort of burnt the rice. I think I misinterpreted the recipe he used some phrase which didn't say obviously burn the rice but it sort of said toast the grains i think i think i might burn the onions then burn the rice so you're making sure you're burning at every every step i do have this tendency to burn everything from toast to anything else in i've sort of reputation goes before me in our house it was a bit it's a bit demoralizing actually when that happens but I'd done it sufficiently far in advance i then got a chance to remake the risotto so you went for a whole new take too and that that was a lot better. When, when you tasted take one, Justine was being nice about it, but it wasn't good news. That's heartbreaking, isn't it? When your uh, spouse yeah. or partner tastes something and you can see that they're pretending to enjoy it. Yeah, and then so then I made the risotto, and it was an even then even the second version was it was hard going. I took, then worked out afterwards. I'm not that keen on risotto. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure it wasn't just that risotto? Yeah, maybe it was actually. I, th- I think we should post it on our socials. Oh, God. Really? It's risotto. <laughs> a cautionary tale. Yeah. Um, or are you going to suppress that picture too? I think it's worth suppressing. You said last week that I need to improve my, what did you say, food photos. So food photography. I think there's like a bunch of things you can do. Don't, aren't people, when they're professionally photographing food, they're using hairspray and nail polish and certain lighting. And I wonder if you need to Google some techniques because at the moment, what you're sending me looks like you're photographing the slops bucket. <laughs> I'm not selling the sizzle really, am I? You're not. I think that is a fair point. I, by the way, I've got... I've got news, which is that you'll be amused by this. I've, I've bought a temperature gauge for the water. Aha! I decided maybe the thing to do, because our very nice listener who talked about the temperatures and all that, I just maybe I need to, if I take temperatures regularly of the water, the ponds, they can then be matched up. So every time you go swimming, do you look, now look like you're on a geography field trip with your thermometer? Well, you've got a clipboard. It hasn't arrived yet. I'm a little bit sort of feeling a little bit like... Because they do write the temperature on the board, but so, obviously So then it's not... you look like you don't trust them. 
Well, I know. I honestly, the whole thing is sort of. I quite like, but as you know, I'm so nerdy that I quite like. I do, you know, I quite like to be able to like say. It, you know, it's part of the sort of boastfulness is to be able to say, you know, oh, it was three point eight today. Although I actually think the temperature is going up. I think we may have got through the worst. Are you planning on secreting this thermometer somewhere in your swimming trunks? <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> because then you would get an accurate reading across all the time that you're in the pond. No, I think that's not quite right. I don't know whether I'm going to carry through with it, but anyway, I just thought it's slightly amusing. I, d- I did send you, um, somebody tweeted me that they'd swam past you. I know. And, and it was so cold that they blurted out something obscene yeah. and then looked up and saw that they'd, they'd said something quite rude in front of Ed Miliband. I remembered actually that they had said that. It was quite cold. So how's your week been? Good. We went to the National Gallery at the weekend. Good. It was my wife's suggestion, and I really didn't want to go, especially not with my five-and-a-half-year-old son, because I appreciate that it is one of the greatest collections of paintings in the world. Yeah. But it's it's they're not necessarily to my taste. There's a lot of pictures of a noble man on a horse or some people from the Bible looking anguished or babies with wings and things, which which isn't really my cup of tea. Yeah. There's some great stuff in there as well. Van Gogh's some flowers and some Monet's and whatever, more to my taste. But the reason I mention this is I found a way to make that type of experience interesting to a young child. Go on. While Sarah was looking at the art, Jean and I went through as many rooms as possible, counting bare bums. Good. And do you want to know our record for number of bare bums in one room? Uh, 27? No. Which rooms have you been in, Ed? I want to go in that room. We only managed 13, but you've really given us something to aim for. (laughs) You're going for your personal best with your swimming. I can now try and beat 13 bums in one room of the National Gallery. I seem to remember when I was a small child going to a museum and... My favourite aspect of it was that <laughs> something to do with the fact that the toilets, you had to put a coin in the slot in order to use the toilet, which I thought was endlessly fascinating. That's but, typical of a child in that environment, though. They're, they're in front of some of the greatest treasures in the world, exactly. and the toilet would be more interesting. Should we talk about what we're going to talk about this week? Yes. So this week on the show, we're looking at the circular economy. The idea of this is that it redefines the economy around principles of designing out waste and pollution, keeping products and materials in use for as long as possible. The easiest way to think about this at the moment is in our linear economy, most of the stuff, the products in our lives have required energy and natural resources to make. And then after we're done with them, we dispose of them, which is a model known as take, make, waste. You still with me? Yeah. Now, a circular economy, on the other hand, is designed to minimise waste. It entails redesigning products to be more durable, reusable, repairable, recyclable, and therefore kept in circulation for as long as possible. Beyond product design innovation, it also means changing the way we consume and use goods and services and rethinking consumerism as a society. Now, to help us understand this more and to hear about how the circular economy is being implemented today, we're going to be joined by Patrick Schroeder, who is from Chatham House, Susan Evans from the Green Alliance, and Marlena Sell from Citra, who's going to be talking to us about Finland's ambitious plan to eliminate waste by 2050. Really looking forward to this uh, conversation. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, my reason to be cheerful, I think I've hinted at this in textual exchanges that we've had, Wordle. Mm. 
For those who don't know, Wordle is everyone game. knows. Surely Does at it, this point, do like, you think everyone knows? Do you not think everyone is posting? Put your hands up if you haven't heard of Wordle. Oh, there are a few, as it turns out. You have to guess a five-letter word. You get six guesses, and it is quite addictive. We play it as a family. When do you play it? Because these Wordles they get set at midnight, and some people are waiting for the clock to evening. I find I always feel a little bit bereft when I've well, we've done the Wordle, so I kind of leave it till the evening. And what is your strategy? I mean, clearly you've got to guess your vowels to begin with, but also the most common letters. And we were actually looking last night at what the most common letters are. And it's sort of S, R, O, E, I think A. Do you open with the same word every day or do you mix No, it up we don't good, actually. Good, we, good, good. You'd see that's good. And how do you play this by committee? No, it, we, we sort of, we circular Wordle. Wow. We're a crack team. Well, I love that image of the, uh, the the Miliband family all gathered around a phone like a 50s family gathered around a radio set. That's true, actually. That's lovely. Yeah. Well, there you go. Wordle, what's your reason to be cheerful? I went to a, a show last night for the first time in ages. I went to a thing at the Soho Theatre in London called One Woman Show by Lizzie Kingsman. And it's been an incredible success. It sold out two shows a night every night for weeks and weeks and weeks. And it's sort of a spoof of a genre that would uh, encompass anything from Lena Dunham to Fleabag to Hannah Gadsby. But it's not nasty. It's not cruel. It's, it's, it's whilst being a satire of those things, it's also sort of an homage to them and uh, really enjoyed it. And I just really enjoyed getting out to see something. And you could feel that in the room. People were just glad to be be out and laughing so i don't know how easy it is to get a ticket at this point but if uh, if you do see one available go for it it's really enjoyable you're so active i feel like exhausted already you're listening to reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd we're going to start with a kind of everything you always wanted to know about the circular economy, but we're afraid to ask with Patrick Schroeder, who is from the Independent Policy Institute, Chatham House. Patrick, hello. Hello. How are you? Thanks for inviting me to join the podcast. Well, th- thanks thanks for coming on. And, um, I, I, you know, I've looked at diagrams. I've read a few bits and bobs. I'm still not convinced that if somebody was to say to me, so what's the circular economy, then I would be able to give a concise answer. Can, can you help, help us with that? Yes, I'll try. So it's a complicated uh, topic and it's an evolving concept, but the, the fundamentals of it are quite simple, really. And maybe it's best to explain it in contrast to the uh, current economic model that we have or the current way we produce and consume. We normally call it the linear system where we have take, make and throw away, basically a model where we extract a lot of resources, process them and manufacture things that we then use, but then at the end of life, discard So the circular economy, in contrast, is the idea that we need to be more efficient with the resources that we use, and that can be done in various ways. One of the concepts that's often used is the three R's, reduce, reuse, recycle. Everybody knows about this, and everybody agrees also that it's it's a good idea to do these things. The other aspect is it's not only about waste, but it's applicable to a whole range of industries. I can reuse, for example, my glass bottle to go to the supermarket and get uh, a refill for my oat milk on on the very day-to-day consumer level. 
but the reuse principle has also been adopted by uh, SpaceX reusing rocket boosters and thereby creating uh, basically a new innovation in the space industry and developing a really successful business. And we see the adoption of circularity principles across many, many sectors of the industry. So, so when we talk about this as an idea, it's a, it's a huge thing that encompasses uh, consumer behaviour, it encompasses manufacture, it encompasses extracting resources. It's, it's not a small thing we're talking about. It's a shift in mindset. It's a shift in mindset. And if we go beyond recycling, because we often associate the circular economy with this recycling plastics, for example, but if, if we take it out of that box, it becomes really a systems change um, approach. That's, that's where the complexity comes in. Uh, but that's also what makes it interesting. These are not new concepts. They've been around for decades. For example, in the 1980s and 1990s, the field of industrial ecology emerged, which is based on the ideas that industrial processes should be more like biological processes. Then following this, another concept that people might be familiar with is cradle to cradle um, that has been used looking at how products are being designed and more recently over the last few years we've seen then also a new stage where people have started talking about circular society which brings in the social dimension that initially was missing so it's not only about material efficiency it's not only about having better products but it's also really about changing our ways of how we engage with stuff. Patrick, that's incredibly helpful historical and, and present-day explanation. Say a little bit more then about the circular society idea which you discuss in your work and, and, and sort of the contrast with the circular economy. It's, it's not, not necessarily a contrast, it's just the other side of the coin. Uh, so if we talk about sustainable production and consumption, and so the circular society maybe links more to the consumption part. So in a way, it's it's about questioning the paradigm of consumerism. Circular economy is not about getting out of jail free, that we can just consume the way we've done in the past. But to make this shift to a circular system also requires changes in, as Jeff, as you mentioned earlier, in mindsets, but also in, in behavior. And so there are lots of initiatives and people are really keen to to become more circular there are really good uh, things happening in terms of repair cafes where people come together it's not only about repairing things but it's also about as a community coming together and it's quite interesting now that links to some wider political discussions that have emerged recently with the right to repair so that's that's been a debate also in the US where we've seen these discussions or tensions between independent repair, large tech companies. And then just over the last few days, I saw a tweet that Joe Biden has shared. So he's put in an executive order supporting the right to repair. And, and that, that goes also to, to the circular society aspect of it. What we've done in our work is we've also looked at the circular economy outside the industrial um, economies. Um, how is the circular economy practiced in countries of the global south? We see there's a lot of interest among governments all around the world putting into place 
roadmaps or action plans for a circular economy. And all this is really encouraging. So we see building blocks falling into place that make this transition happen. And just on the global south, can you talk to us a little bit about the impact that our history of linear economies in countries like the UK have had on the global south? Yes, this is the, the linear model is also an extractive model. So we do depend heavily on extraction of resources from from many developing countries. And in many cases, the benefits are not directly felt by communities in, in those countries. So we know the net zero transition will require uh, shifting from fossil fuels towards other means, require a huge amount of different metals and, and minerals that need to be mined. So there's a, a huge increase expected in mining activities. And the, where the circular economy comes in is we want to ensure that the new technologies that we put in place, including renewable energy techno- um, technologies, solar, wind, but also electric vehicles and the batteries, that we design these systems from the outset in a circular mindset that we don't create another waste issue with those uh, low-carbon technologies. And how can the circular economy sort of help reduce the global inequalities then? So we know there's currently illegal exports of waste, plastic waste dumping into developing countries because we're generating a lot of this and we don't have often in in the UK or Europe, necessarily recycling facilities for this. So that's really a situation that needs to be changed. But another question is also how countries are looking at the circular economy. And there are trends that countries taking a bit of a resource nationalist approach, trying to use the circular economy to boost national competitiveness, which then potentially would also negatively impact developing countries. We're going to talk about the waste goals in Finland uh, a little later at the end of the episode. You mentioned um, Joe Biden. I, I wondered if if you look for sort of gold standard examples of this in action from around the world. What projects uh, what projects have you seen that you like? Just recently, the last few days, Chile has published a circular economy roadmap for for their country. Costa Rica, as a country, they have also a circular economy action plan. Developments as, as really encouraging. What sort of steps typically are in those plans? It's a process, a very participatory, deliberative process to engage as many stakeholders as possible to ensure that everybody's on board. We, we also try to highlight or link it to just transition processes, which we know from the energy transition discussions, ensuring that people have a seat on the table involved in, in decision-making. These are also key for for circular economy transition. One new project that we're involved in is called Switch to Circular. It's led by UNIDO, the United Nations Industrial Development Organization. And this is about supporting, for example, manufacturers in the textiles and garments industry in in Bangladesh and Vietnam. So these are all good first steps in, in the right direction. Patrick, is there any version of where are we at and where do we need to get to that would be an easy answer or is it difficult to quantify? So the, the gap report is quite good. I think we're consuming about 100 billion tonnes of resources currently per year. And if we follow the trajectory, then this will increase to something like 170 billion tonnes by 2050. 
So obviously that's unsustainable. That's a bit of a frightful scenario because associated with that, we would see a lot of further degradation of soils, biodiversity loss, marine environment. The circularity gap report is good in terms of, yeah, what's the current state? And so it's less than 10% of, of materials and resources that we, in a way, loop back in or reuse. So, so we've got a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, Patrick, which is Jeff as a sort of supreme and he assures us benign ruler. If he was to sort of make you the minister for the circular economy, what are the first two or three things that you would want to see happen that are not happening at the moment? So in the UK, what we have at the moment, so circular economy can be seen in various policy documents, but there's not a unified or a comprehensive strategy that would maybe be something that I would try to get in place. And there's a number of policy approaches that could be implemented. One of them, I think, that's really key is about sustainable design standards. So I think starting from the product level, I think there's a lot of things that can be done that would come out of this. Well, Patrick Schroeder, um, you've really given us a very good ABC guide to the um, circular economy. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. To talk further about the circular economy and its implications for policy making and for the UK, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Susan Evans, who's Senior Policy Advisor at Green Alliance. Susan, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, it's good to be here. We've been hearing from Patrick about the circular economy, which is designed to eliminate waste, regenerate nature and circulate resources and materials. Can you talk to us a little bit about the importance of this idea when it comes to the the climate crisis? Yes, it's absolutely huge in terms of the the climate impacts. So if you look at on a global level, our use of resources, just the extraction, processing, manufacturing side of things um, accounts for perhaps half of global greenhouse gas emissions, um, according to the United Nations Environment Programme. And that's before you take into account other impacts of when we're using materials. So the the climate impacts are massive, but then it's not just the climate impacts um, because When you're talking about using resources, it means digging stuff out the ground and possibly exploding stuff out the ground. It means growing things in in big fields. There are huge land use implications. So it actually has over 90% of impacts on biodiversity and water stress and, of course, can be associated with quite severe pollution and impacts on communities as well. So, yeah, it's a big part of the story. So this way of, of sort of running our economy and society it has direct effects. As, as it is absolutely crucial for the climate crisis, it sounds like. It is. And we really hope to see it on the agenda at future COP meetings because it really wasn't there on the agenda at COP26 at all. But when it comes to the climate crisis, we have to do everything that we can. So, yeah, I hope that we turn more attention to it in the coming years. 
And, and tell us about uh, the current situation in the UK. And uh, we're braced for some uncomfortable truths here. But do, do you want to give us an idea of the scale of waste here? Here in the UK, if you look at certain waste streams, we come out pretty badly compared to other countries. So, for example, I think globally per person, we produce the second highest amount of electronic waste. And I think we've all seen some of those sort of alarming pictures of what happens to that electronic waste. You know, we've got we've had a scandal where unsold products have been just dumped, even though they're perfectly good. But also worryingly, a lot of it gets exported. So it's an issue, for example, not just in electronic waste, but also in plastic waste. We all know that plastic waste is a huge problem in the UK. We produce so much plastic waste compared to a lot of other countries, and then we export a huge amount of it. In fact, a majority of what we report as recycled is actually exported and there's very little verification of what actually happens to that. And there've been some very good investigative reports in the last few years showing that often what happens to that is not very positive. Um, so yeah, there's a, hu- there's a huge um, challenge here, both in terms of cutting down at the start of the pipe, kind of what's going in to the system, you know, what are we using in the economy and then how are we dealing with things, you know, as it comes out the other end of the economy as waste as well. And we need to be intervening right along the life cycle of goods and products. That's really useful. One of the key aspects of this is, is to think about resources and materials, as you said earlier, rather than thinking further downstream about recycling. You're not against recycling, obviously, but but it's about how you use resources in the first instance, isn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. There are so many ways that we can cut the amount of stuff going through the system. So one issue that um, that I have at the moment with the government's policies on waste is we, we're trying to eliminate avoidable waste. But when the government's talking about avoidable waste, at the moment, they're, they're saying, well, if we've recycled it, we've avoided it. Great. But actually, to me, avoidable waste is things that are avoidable at the point where we use them. So if we're using loads of single-use items that we just don't need, um, if we're all owning things where actually we could be leasing them or in just borrowing them when we need them, that is avoidable waste that we need to be tackling as well, not waiting until it's got to the point where nothing else can be done with it. Um, and there are so many examples of what we can do. So we can start with lifetime extension. So that means making things to last in the first place. I think that's really consumer friendly, right? We all like things that last. We get really annoyed when you you buy something expensive and it breaks down after two or three years. So making things to last, making things repairable, that's definitely an area where the government can intervene. And we've seen some, some steps in that direction. So we do have something starting to approach a right to repair for some white goods that we have in our home, but it doesn't actually go far enough at the moment. We've started thinking about it in the sort of things we use day to day, so like packaging and cups and, you know, we're looking to ban plastic cutlery and plates and things like that. But the circular economy is much broader than that. And it can be applied to almost anything like cars. It applies to things like housing. I think we have a long way to go in sort of understanding all the possibilities still, but there's some really exciting business models coming through. What would it mean for something like, if you think about housing or or cars, what, what what's the sort of implications of, of the circular economy for those everyday, for, for everyday items like that? Um, well, funnily enough, cars are actually quite a, a good example of the circular economy where in many ways, the industry's adopted <laughs> some, some models because it's working quite well for them. So cars are a relatively repairable item and a lot of people do try and make their car last for as long as possible. And we're starting to see as we shift to electric vehicles where your manufacturers are taking back the electric batteries 
and reprocessing them. And But we have a long way to go. So the challenge of batteries is going to be huge going forward. And many people lease their cars rather than owning them as well, especially in cities. We're seeing a shift to car clubs where you just use it when you need it. And that's a really efficient use of that resource of the car. You know, if everyone's making use of it, so it gets used all day by different people rather than everyone having their own ones and takes traffic off the road, makes the air cleaner and saves money a lot of the time. So part of the principle here is instead of having to sort of produce all these things and then find a zero carbon way of doing them mm -hmm. it's like you don't need to produce as much in the first place is that the ba that's the basic idea yeah i think that's that's a good way of thinking about it so it's the first step is find ways to make you know, more efficient use of of the things we do make and share them more and you know, use them for longer and all that kind of thing um, but also when you're, I think design is a really important aspect of the circular economy. So whatever it is you're making, whether it's a coffee cup or whether it's a house, think about what's going to happen when that reaches the end of its useful life and think about how you can design that so that it can fit in with our systems that we have in place or, what, or think about what systems we need to put in place to ensure that we can reuse those materials um, and there's some really exciting ideas coming up around um, how you could design houses in a more modular way, for example, and in ways that they can be taken apart. So more of the components within that house can be reused at the point that it's demolished. So we should move away from just smashing homes to bits and filling up landfills with all the rubble um, towards actually reclaiming a lot more of those goods. You mentioned plastic in passing there, and there's been a lot of focus on plastic waste. How important is eliminating single-use plastic? Because it, it, it also throws up some problems. Mm -hmm. You can go down rabbit holes with this one. Let's go down a rabbit hole. Let's go down a rabbit hole. So we have had quite a piecemeal approach to, uh, to plastics in this country. So just to throw up some examples of what's been done so far, we've banned plastic microbeads, but only in certain cosmetic products, which captures perhaps 9% of all of the plastic microbeads that are intentionally put out in the environment every year in the UK and doesn't account for things that are unintentionally put out as microplastics. So we've tackled one small thing. It's positive. Then at the moment, we're looking to, to ban certain specific single-use plastic items like cutlery and plates and um, food trays. The problem with, with that is that if we just ban those single-use plastic items without a strategy to move away from this single-use culture that we're all living in and move towards reuse, what's going to happen is that, as we're seeing already, everyone's switching to using single-use items made of other materials like paper, cardboard and wood are very common. Um, they might have less negative impacts at the end of life, but that's just looking down the end of the pipe. If you look upstream at when you're extracting resources, cutting down trees. There are also really big problems. And in the case of wood and paper, we already have a situation where businesses find it really hard to source enough sustainably produced forestry products. There's not enough of them. So what happens if we then switch all of our plastic packaging and single-use items across to paper and wood? That puts more pressure on forestry supply chains. So while it solves some problems, it creates new problems potentially. And so that's why what we really want to see is shifting towards reuse, it refill models and those kind of things that actually cut wasteful use of materials, no matter what that material is. Now, the Green Alliance has been working with industry on what's called the Circular Economy Task Force. Perhaps you could talk to us about what work that task force is doing. Mm -hmm. It's 
aim is basically to make sure that we have a strategic and responsible approach to resources in the UK. Um, and we have a, a series of business members who help to advise on you know, what, what the focus of the work should be. And Green Alliance you know, conducts the research and analysis independently. And we engage a fair bit with government departments like DEFRA as well. And then more recently, we've we've done work looking at the materials impacts of the, the net, net zero transition. So we've just done a piece of work uh, looking at the critical minerals that are needed for really crucial technologies like electric vehicle batteries and wind turbines, solar panels. Again, calling for that resources focus in this conversation, which you don't, you know, people don't really talk about it very much. You, we want to just build as many wind turbines as possible, as fast as possible. We do need to to do that, but we need to think about how we're sourcing the materials that go into that infrastructure. On that point, because people will be thinking about that, aware of that debate in relation, say, to electric vehicles, what's the the conclusions that you reached? So our view is that we need to really focus on scaling up um, the circular economy, unsurprisingly, for for these materials, because that can cut demand for raw materials. That Rather than seeing a really rapid increase in mining for these minerals, we could circulate more within the economy and so create more jobs within the economy as we do that. What would that mean for electric vehicles? Is that greater use of public transport or? Yeah, exactly. So in the case of electric vehicles, um, switching much more quickly to public transport and active travel, which in many ways are beneficial, switching to heat pumps and better insulation, all of that reduces pressure on the electricity grid, which then reduces pressure for the materials that go into making that energy infrastructure. So it's kind of seeing those systemic impacts that, that often get missed. And what's the reaction of industry been like? Fairly positive in terms of that there's quite a few businesses looking to invest in things like battery reprocessing um, in the UK and other parts of Europe. But I would say there's also quite a lot of emphasis on how do we secure new sources of mining? And we're worried there won't be quite enough emphasis on, and actually, how do we reduce demand for these raw materials or limit the rapid increases in, in demand by building that circular economy? So if in our hypothetical utopia, we put you in charge, maybe we'd make you the circular treasurer. <laughs> what What is the first thing you do on day one? Because it's implementing a, a or transitioning to a circular economy is a big job. I think that's a great question, because actually the treasury has a really interesting role to play in this, given the incentives are a big problem. You know, if we want businesses to switch to circular business models, we need to not make it quite as convenient and cheap to do a linear, wasteful business model. Um, So the Treasury could start with the tax system and take a really strategic approach to setting up taxation and spending um, in a way that aligns with our net zero strategy as well as our wider economic goals. And there's yes, a load of interesting work going on out there about greening the tax system. Well, that sounds like an episode in itself, greening the tax system. Yeah. So I think ensuring that there's spending and support for building up our recycling infrastructure, helping build up reuse, helping businesses to make the investments involved in the transition to a circular business model. So I think at the moment, we've got lots of pilots, we've got lots of niche businesses, and we need to make this mainstream now. And that's that's the real challenge. I suppose it's quite striking this because it's so easy to think, well, how do we reduce our carbon emissions from sort of doing the same things we're doing, but in a sort of zero carbon way. And it is a sort of different way of thinking about things, isn't it? Yeah. 
and I think I think the appeal of the circular economy should be that you know we, like we don't want to just go back to growing our own turnips and back garden and things like that you know we, we we want to continue to have a nice modern lifestyle and so we need to change the way we access goods change our relationship with stuff so in in Europe, there's a lot of discussion about changing ownership models, for example, where a business, instead of just immediately selling everything off to consumers, would actually retain ownership and have a, a leasing relationship, for example, with, with the consumer. And that's happening um, in sectors from, from fashion to, I mean, we all know cars do that already. And that just means that the company that keeps hold of ownership of those materials has an incentive to take care of them and keep them at their highest value for as long as possible. And it also means that these things get used more efficiently because they're not just being stuck off in some cupboard and you know, rarely used. They're being used on a regular basis by different people. And it's happening in the voluntary sector too. In my local town, we've got a sort of reuse hub. They have things like a tool library, which I make use of. So I pay a small annual subscription. And then when I need a, a garden rake or like recently we needed a power drill, you just go and borrow it and then take it back and then someone uses it. So rather than everyone owning one, I mean, we've been doing it for hundreds of years with books. Why not do it with other items as well, right? Well, Susan, thank you so much for talking to us about this subject and, and about the ideas and the work you're doing at Green Alliance. Thanks very much for having me on. Yeah, I could talk about it all day. Finally, we're off to Finland, which we always enjoy to talk to Malena Sell, who's from Citra, the Finnish innovation consultancy working on zero waste by 2050. Hello, Malena. Hello. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. We've seen headlines saying Finland's going to eradicate waste by 2050. Is, is that the story? Yes, eradicating waste is one way to look at it, but really waste is very downstream. And when you think about a circular economy, the first thing you may be thinking about is recycling, but you need to be moving upstream and moving to the design phase. And um, for sure, if we are fully in a circular economy by 2050, we as such won't have much waste, but it's really about systems change. And Finland has a very specific target. We have a target in um, our strategic program for the circular economy. And that is that by 2035, we won't be using any more natural resources than in 2015. That's what the kind of core goal is about. <laughs> And obviously, that's the headline target. Um, what does that mean in practice? And, and is it sort of possible for it to happen? Well, it's definitely challenging. Finland, just like most other countries, were all at the beginning stages of this transition, but were among those that started first. And some of the keys to change for us have been creating a national roadmap in 2016, coming up with both our goals and targets, but also strategies together for how to reach them. So it's been really important to have people from all different sectors work together to define these targets, to really create a vision I definitely believe that we can have that kind of an economy in 2050, but it will take a lot of different actions and change across different sectors of the society as well. 
what, what will it mean for people? I mean, if we if we sort of break this down into what are some key things that would need to change in Finland for this to happen? I think everybody needs to really think about consumption in a new way and about lifestyles. And that's why education is so important. CITRA, the Finnish Innovation Fund, we're an independent think tank actually under the parliament with our own endowment. What we've done is work with educators. So there are different programs for different parts of the educational system. So everything from children learning about environmental issues and recycling and circular economy throughout um, universities, uh, vocational institutions. And it's about lifelong learning because there won't be any curriculum on circular economy as such. It's more integrating circular economy into existing um, vocations and existing jobs. And one of the things that will change, um, I think, is circular economy and the digital economy moving ahead hand in hand. So a lot of the solutions that can help us really become much more efficient are also very much reliant on technology and data. And um, I'd be happy to give you some examples of some interesting companies that we have in Finland that are showing the way to what a circular economy can look like. Please do. So I have two sons who are 13 and 16 at this point. And of course, they love their electronic devices and their phones. So a company called Swappy in Helsinki uh, started just a few years ago to refurbish iPhones. And they really do it in a very advanced way. It's about the technology. It's about the AI that they can really get high quality refurbished phones and these can be used for many more years bringing down material and and carbon footprints and so before my kids would have chosen probably a new iPhone but now they think it's cool to use a swappy phone and their friends do as well what was the thing that shifted teenagers from wanting new iPhones to wanting swappy phones So, you know, it's not enough to have great technology to create a recycled or refurbished phone. You really need the influencers. You need the teenagers to think it's cool. And, of course, they have to work super well. I also have a swappy phone and it it works perfectly and you get it with a guarantee. A lot of this must surely be about government and regulation and what's happening at the sort of big macro level. Do you want to just say a little bit about that? Yes. So... In the EU, we have the Circular Economy Action Plan that was launched just a couple of years ago. That's sort of the more practical program under the Green Deal. I think what's most interesting in it is probably the sustainable product policy, because as long as we have products that just break and that, you know, we have planned obsolescence, etc., then there's not much space for circular products to go ahead and be the winning products. But with this policy, in the ideal world, hopefully we will have, by 2030, only products that are durable, recyclable, reusable, and repairable um, on the market. And of course, that changes everything. It changes the whole set of incentives for producers and for consumers as well. Another thing that's quite interesting, I think also when you think about the circular economy is that probably the first generation was exactly about recycling. And then after that, 
the whole idea of, of resource efficiency. So in Finland, one example of that would be Kone cranes that produces these massive cranes used in ports and other places. And as capital goods, they're very expensive and they have to be durable. Nobody would buy a product that's not durable. It has to be really refurbishable as well. And so companies like these have come up with um, ways to really make the most of predictive maintenance data, etc., to produce lasting products and to provide services through the long lifetimes of the products. And um, that's that just makes economic sense. But when it comes to consumer goods, we're not quite there yet. And that's why the sustainable product policy is so important. If sort of coolness is part of getting teenagers on board, the company you just described who make these cranes, what's, what's the key to getting industry on board with this? That's bottom line. It makes so much more sense. Sometimes in the B2B space, for a company that needs a crane, what they really need is uh, the function of the crane. So there are also examples of actually a company selling the service on an ongoing basis and not selling the capital good. And that also incentivizes good service, predictive maintenance and ensuring a long life of the products. Talk to us about like some of the big ticket items like housing or transport or energy. Well, again, it's all about design. Today, we don't even necessarily know what goes into a new building, but with the new regulations, we'll have these info banks so that everything can be recycled at the end. But it's also about modularity, about design for long-lasting um, buildings. That goes very much hand-in-hand, hand, of course, with climate targets. The housing, for example? Different materials as well, and especially, I mean, like with materials in housing, but in all other products that we use today, right now they're often very, very complex, and you might have hazardous and non-hazardous hazardous materials um, in the same product. So really knowing what's in there and knowing how to take it apart at the end of, of the lifetime. I mean, this is one very sort of, at, at this point, important example of that is also batteries. Now that we're going electrical when it comes to transport, batteries and battery use is expected to you know, go up by 14 times over the next 10 years uh, in the EU, for example. But, you know, what goes into that battery? How can we be sure that they are recyclable? And um, how does it become economically interesting to recycle them? And in, in Finland, we also have a company called Fortum that is creating um, new facilities exactly to become a recycling hub for batteries because we will need those critical raw materials that are in there and we will need to know how that you know we just don't end up with loads of obsolescent batteries in the future and just create new problems instead of when we solve one what's the biggest thing a country like the UK can learn from Finland is 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 it just the ambition of the targets and the goals and saying we're going to do this by this date and then we're going to do this by this date or is there more to it than that well, for us, one of the really most important things has been getting just very different parts of society on board and 
having a bottom-up approach where we can learn together and where we can discuss. And part of that is also being sure that we create a just transition because just like with climate and climate action, change will affect different parts of the population in different ways. And we need to be aware of that and we need to have everybody involved and everybody on board. And of course, um, if there are certain parts of society that might have problems because you know their jobs evaporate or something just listening to them and providing solutions and education lifelong learning is is really important so the social issues are are key as well and this issue of education is really a big deal in finland around the circular economy isn't it it is, and um, it's something that we're still working on, of course. Um, over the last year, after having launched different programs around elementary school, high school, universities, we realized that the vocational schools had gotten less um, attention, perhaps. So, so we launched um, some pilot programs with vocational schools as well. Because a lot of the practicalities, like when we're talking about housing, is obviously in the hands of those who do the building. <laughs> But but just so I, we understand it, because we're sort of at a more basic level here, it's an embedded part of the normal curriculum, is it? Uh, learning about what the climate crisis, circular economy. Yes, exactly. It's it's embedded, um, especially at sort of the basic levels, where already in kindergarten, you have kids doing very practical things and just building new stuff from from something that might have been broken. But then, of course, when it comes to the university level, it can be embedded in, in different types of engineering, be it it can be embedded into architecture studies, etc. But it is quite cross-disciplinary and, and it's probably not, you know, you won't go to school just to study circular economy. But in secondary school, for example, it will be part of what you'd learn. Exactly. And there it comes with environmental education. And does everybody do that or just some people? Or By now, it's really most most students will go through it. It started out with um, a pilot in 2017, but then very soon there were thousands of teachers that joined and helped co-create it. So so now most students at one point or other will, will learn about circular economy. I mean, obviously, it sounds like there's so much happening in, in Finland, uh, Malena, but uh, Finland is, is one part of the puzzle. How, how big a part does international cooperation play in this? Well, international cooperation is key and we need a global transition to a circular economy. Finland can operate as a pilot. We can test things out, but obviously we need change on a global scale. And we're also so linked through our global economy, through global value chains, so one thing that Citra has been um, part of is launching the World Circular Economy Forum, which was created in 2017. And now we just have all different continents, all different parts of the world are involved, all big UN agencies, um, World Bank, but also third sector uh, companies. And usually once per year, there's the big forum. And now it's, of course, been online for a couple of years, but it really is an inspiring place. And that's the idea, just finding these inspiring solutions, because we know the problems and we know how dire they are, but we need to get together and be inspired as well. So that's important. And another thing that we're 
doing is we're working with the African Development Bank and Finland is um, is involved in a in creating a trust fund for circular economy there, which will help all countries on the African continent to create their own national roadmap because it really needs to be a bottom-up process owned by those who will implement it. And uh, that's one of the keys to the future as well. So getting different parts of the world involved and learning from each other. <laughs> and for anyone listening to this, uh, or myself, who is thinking I want to live a life more circular, um, how, how much can you do as an individual? Well, you can start with that refurbished uh, iPhone, of course. <laughs> and a lot of it is also, I guess, just talking about the ideas like you're doing now with bringing up a circular economy on your, your podcast. That's super important. Um, I guess you start looking at your life through a slightly different lens and it's not completely, you know, it's, it's coupled to living a more environmentally sustainable life because, you know, climate, biodiversity, et cetera. So, so it's, it's quite wide ranging. And Citra has also developed a tool called um, the Shift 1.5 Lifestyle Test where you can do a quick little um, online test and see what would be the best way for you to live a more sustainable life. We did a, we did an episode a while ago called Reasons to Be Finished, and I feel like you've just given us several more. So thank you for that. Uh, we really enjoyed that conversation, Malena Sell from Citra. Uh, thanks for talking to us. Well, thank you so much, and um, I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for doing your great podcast. <laughs> well, what did you think? Well, I always feel uplifted by talking to a fan. Mm. The flying fins. That's the first thing. I mean, I guess the thing about this is, even though it's big and it encompasses so many things, the, the idea of not taking out more than you put in, it's like basic common sense stuff that should just underpin all human behaviour, really. Why should it be that unthinkable? And it also seems that this there's a lot of overlap between this and stuff around a just transition that we've talked about in the past. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I found it really interesting. I think it's a sort of... It's a way of looking, of looking at the climate crisis from the other end of the telescope. And I do think this sort of, is it reduce, reuse, recycle is quite a good way of sort of thinking about it. It's not that you're just going to do everything the same way in a zero carbon way, but you're going to do it differently, I think. So I found it really, really enlightening. I thought also Malena's account of Finland and the way it's, they're sort of really trying to drive it forward. And also the the schools aspect of it is, I thought, really interesting. Everybody learns about the circular economy, or almost everybody learns about the circular economy. She was really big on the importance of, of getting everybody on board and it not coming from the top down. Yeah, and it was you know, started in 2017. I mean, I do think this is partly about consumer behaviour, but it is also a lot to do with how does government work with industry? What does industry do? How What are your met production methods? Because I don't think this is something that can just be tackled by the by individual consumer choice and behavior it clearly needs the system's design at the at the broader level but it's i mean honestly i found it absolutely fascinating send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com find us on facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast well we're in the outro we are are you gonna have a rematch with your own kitchen this weekend Mm, I think I was going to have a weekend off. Ed, Ed, I'm here to to make sure you keep up with your new hobby. You you asked me mm. to do that. 
So well, I think I need a one week off and then back on. I'm not to expect any uh, any food photography this weekend. No, I need to brush up on my food photography in the meantime. Okay. Um, Shall we uh, thank our guests? Yes. I'd like to thank Patrick Schroeder, Susan Evans and Malena Sell. Thanks to Emma Corsham for producing all the audio on our podcast. Uh, Joe Kenyon at Goldfish uh, provided all the research and found all the guests for us this week and brought us up to speed. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our eye dents. Our music was composed by Ed Seed and our artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.